Welcome to Do Not Go Quiet. Here's the deal. I'm the best there is, plain and simple. I mean, and nobody can hang with my stuff. With Eric Wilson. There's a big, hairy American winning machine. First form no knockdown champion, right? Uh, I want Deets, man. Yeah, I call it, I guess, because they were going back and forth on the, the name. It'd be the, I'm the winner of the first forum November knockdown finals. Okay, so how did that whole thing roll? I remember you telling me that it was like, a, you had to submit everything online, right? And then there was an in-person finals? Yeah, there was like an online qualifier. Um, you win a week and you got an automatic bid to come complete in the compete in the finals. And then... Uh, we had no idea what we were really competing for because they didn't tell us ahead of time. They just what said, What did you have to do to qualify? Uh, there were some workouts they posted. Like one of them was the, like week one was like 15 burpees. You shot an arrow at 20 yards and you did that for four rounds. And whoever okay. was the fastest, you know, you win the workout. And then week two, it was like some more stuff like that, like some really pretty simple body weight stuff some really simple stuff for pretty much everyone has access to do at home because there was really if you have a bow besides that there's really no real large equipment you know hurdle to get over um, but it was like you had to do more than one submission you had to do something every week yeah there was four weeks you you didn't have to do all four weeks i guess you know i didn't do all four weeks um i won a week so like I had the best in week three, so I didn't have to, I mean, I didn't have to do week four gotcha. um, because I had already won week three. It wasn't like a cumulative across all the weeks. Um, it was just, Hey, win a week and you get a bid. Okay. So then they had the finals, what last weekend in St. Louis and it was in person. Yeah, it was on Friday. There was a total of 10 people that were there to compete. It was, five people that won the four weeks because one of the weeks uh two individuals tied and then they invited they had like their uh like community invite like people that competed in all the weeks that kind of embody the first form outdoors like you know what they want to see that like who that person is um mm -hmm. someone who's energetic about being outside participating working out health and fitness is a priority and so they invited some of those people um yeah and it made a total of 10 of us competing for what ended up being a ten thousand dollar payday and a one year well i guess you were the i am the first first form outdoors pro staff athlete so you made 10 grand yeah nice yeah that's sweet yeah. Well, so what did that get? Was it two days? It was Friday and Saturday or what was it? Uh, the competition was just Friday. And uh, what did y'all have to do? Oh, man. A lot. A lot. Uh, so like the workouts for the qualifier were very, they were really, we'll call it four minute and under workouts. They were really quick, high turnover. Um, not a lot of grinding it out work involved as long as you can go hard for a few minutes you know that that's where that, that's those kind of workouts and what that happened like friday morning like you had to no that was that was the, the qualifier or? that was just to get there that's what we did back okay. in november uh on friday they really like i mean they uh, jake 
Arvold, who put the he's like the the brainchild behind First Form Outdoors and this whole competition. He right. really he made us how to work. He drug us through the mud. Um, first workout was so we had a thirty pound ruck, like a go ruck backpack. We had to go. We were out at uh, one of the owner of the companies. Uh, his was farm, go ruck so. there. Go ruck wasn't there. I mean, they had equipment there, but uh, but it was I don't their know. stuff. Yeah, it was their stuff. Okay. So we took this thirty-five pound pack, ran or thirty-pound pack, ran six tenths of a mile around a pond through like, and it's not like running on the street or running on like like really good trails. It was literally running through like cut fields. Um, so it was very I mean, running with terrain. a thirty-pound pack just by itself. Like, I mean, I did a, I did a go ruck. It was like I think it was go ruck heavy. It was like twenty four hours or something. But I, I mean, we were like rucking. Like I can't imagine running with a thirty pound pack, and then you put it out in the middle of a field. Like that's yeah, jacked before you ever get going. A hundred percent. It uh, it definitely wasn't. It, running is not a thing that I'm like good at to begin with. It's not that I'm not good at it. It's just years of tire changing have not been nice to my knees per se so imagine <laughs> it's not something that i yeah. like it's just not something that i kind of like really i don't seek to do it out a lot there's a lot of other low impact you know cardio options that i have so i usually you know gear myself towards those um yeah, just for I'm general way. just for general fitness and then running is kind of one of those things i feel like you can have good cardio, but if you're not like running conditioned, um, it really just kind of sucks the wind out of you. Uh, I was going to literally say, and figuratively. If you're not like, that's a big max VO two thing, you know, like if yeah. you're not pushing your, your, your heart rate really, really high all the time. And the other thing too, about running that I think, cause I used to do triathlons and stuff. The first three quarters of a mile sucks worse than the fifth mile. So like going out like that, if you're doing six tenths of a mile with a pack, like that's probably the worst part of a five mile run right there. Yeah. So that was just, that was like part so one you start there. So it was a, it was six tenths of a mile ruck around this pond. You came back and, um, we got to the, your station. You, we had to do 15 burpees. After you get done with those 15 burpees, you shot one arrow at, I want to say the yardage was like 35 yards mm -hmm. and the target we're shooting at is a, uh, it's just that general generic, you know, the big morel targets, yep. um, like the bag targets, mm -hmm. they have the center bullseye in the middle of them. Right. So depending on where you hit on the target, you either took time away from your total score or you added time to your total score, your work, your, your complete oh, workout time. So inside of that, like inside the yellow, they have the 10 ring. If you hit the 10 ring, you got 10 seconds minus off your time. Mm -hmm. uh, if you hit the ring just outside of it, five seconds, four, three, two, one, when you count the rings out. And then if you missed the bullseye on the target, but you still hit the target, it added 30 seconds to your workout. And if you missed the target completely, it added a minute to your workout. So this whole thing is essentially a race. It, yeah. It's, it's a, a, it, the whole thing's a time thing. Is that right? Yes. So they had, uh, there was the, I, guess, I don't know. There was four workouts 
but those workouts were broken up and you had the four fitness components part of it. Like you got scored on your workout for your total time, how long it took you to complete all of this work. And then the way your arrows scored, that was also a score um, that counted. So there was eight total okay. scored events that created the spectrum of points that you could earn in the weekend. Um, the lowest amount of points you accumulate is better. More points you accumulate worse. Like I first, you get, you know, one point, 10th, you get 10 points, that kind of, that kind of scale. Gotcha. So the round one of the first workout was the, uh, six tenths of a mile run around the pond, the 15 burpees, shoot one arrow. Once you're done with that, you put your pack back on, you go back out on a run. You do another six tenths around this pond again, come back. <laughs> Then I'm picking is, up the vibe at this point. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> 20 air squats. And then once you get done with those 20 air squats, we shot two arrows, same target. Once you get done with the arrows, you run, put your pack back on, you slug back around that pond one more time. There was not as much running the third time as there was the first two times. Well, um, a lot more rucking, I would imagine, at that point. We'll call it power walking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, when it was flat or down, we were running when it was up, we were power walking because right. I could walk almost faster than I could run at that point. I've um, always thought it's really hard to run with a weighted ruck. Did you, did they give you like waist belts for those things or were they just bouncing around on your back no. when you're trying to run? They were just the, it's just like, I can't describe it. It's just this generic go ruck backpack. Uh, it's like that really thick, like canvas material. Yeah, it's with like no waste belt. Yeah. yeah, I've got one of those. Like I kind of use that as my everyday, just like throw it in the truck thing. And if I, I actually went out this weekend and did like a four and a half, five mile ruck, and I did this hill like five times. But if you try, like I tried to run with it just a little bit, and the thing was bouncing all over my back. It's definitely not ideal for running. No. So it, it bounced all over the place. Um, and for me to like, to mitigate the bouncing, to kind of like save my shoulders and traps and just, you know, generic fatigue over the day. Um, I cinched it down about as tight as I could. And then it was like, it was right. hard to breathe. So you try to loosen it up a little <laughs> bit. Uh, and then you're trying to shoot your bow. Oh, like after you're smoking your traps from having that thing jack around on your, you know, shoulders as you run. Yeah, the worst part, it, my, my shoulders actually survived the weekend very well. Um, it's it's something that, like, changing tires in NASCAR, like, I have really good shoulder health, um, and I'm constantly very conscious of taking care of my shoulders, so that wasn't a major concern for me, but the bottom of the backpack sat just above my waist belt. It took layers of skin off like layers of skin your shirt so, was like riding up underneath the pack or was it just rubbing you over the top of your shirt both it it rode up a little bit and i could feel it immediately so i like pulled my shirt down and i didn't just tuck it into my shorts i tucked it like into my underwear because i was yeah. like i don't want this to move um but the damage i think had already been done and then just the constant just back and forth of the sandbags just shifting a little bit in there and just the running um I'm not like the greatest so they, technical runner anyways. They weighted them with sandbags. Yeah. Because GORUCK makes these plates that like, they make like evenly, a metal plate. Yeah. Right. It evenly distributes across the backpack. But if you throw a sandbag in there, the entire weight of the bag is sitting in the bottom. Correct. <laughs> so they were like, 
Okay, we're going to make this as hard as physically possible. I don't know if they tried like intentionally made it that way or if it was just a product of, hey, we have these. And the sandbags were like, um, you know how you get like a dry bag, you can fill it up. It's got like a roll top and it clips yeah. together. Mm-hmm. They were like that. So I don't know if it was just a product of like, hey, we already have this stuff. We're not going to go, you know, get yeah. the plates from GoRuck. Like I, und- I know they have those plates, but we definitely did not have those plates. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, that was, oh, so we'll go back to the beginning workout, workout one. It was that six tenths of a mile loop, uh, 15 burpees, shoot an arrow, uh, round two of that was you went straight into six tenths of a mile loop, 20 air squats, shoot two arrows. And then you go back out for your third run. It's six tenths of a mile loop. And then you came in, did 30 pushups and then shot three arrows, um, at the release of your last arrow, when it hits a target, then you, your score for that workout is over. Uh, that was, I think, for everybody, it was like a 20 to 28-minute workout. It was just long. There's nowhere to really hide in the workout because the majority of the workout, honestly, is running uh, or right. it's rucking. It's traversing this pack over this range. The burpees, the air squats, and the push-ups, the volume wasn't really... It was just something you had to do. It wasn't even annoying. It was, it was just, just it was one more thing to kind of push your heart rate up before they made you shoot. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to do basically four rounds of stuff like that, right? And then at the end of the day, they're you got a point total and that's how they determine the winner. Yeah, they did four separate workouts. We did two before lunch, two after lunch. Mm-hmm. Um that all of that was workout number 1 and that kind of just set the precedent for the weekend that or for the day that, Hey, this is going to suck. Um, and it's, it's about being fast. It's about being accurate, but it's also about being just smart and knowing where to push and knowing what you can do to like help yourself out and what you can do to like maybe mitigate the weaknesses. How'd you shoot when it was time for you? To I shoot? shot me shot particular. I thought I shot really well. Um, I really, I kind of have this, like when I get into competitions like this, like just from being in competitive atmospheres all the time, I know I do better when I focus on myself and what I'm doing. And I'm not really paying too much attention to what other people are doing. So I really focused on like how I shot my arrows. I focused on me in the workout. Like I wasn't really paying too much attention to who was around me or uh, like, oh, I have to go catch this person or I can't let this person pass me. I just focused on like, hey, I'm going to push as hard as I can go. And wherever I kind of settle out, that's where I settle out. So I didn't pay as much attention to like how other people were shooting. But I just kind of had a general like because we were in lanes. So your targets like right. You have target on the right of you and the left of you. You know, I could kind of glance over and be like, you know, OK, Clint shot pretty good here or, you know, okay, Brandon shot pretty good here or Brandon didn't shoot good or Clint didn't shoot good. Like you just, you kind of like look at it and you're like, okay, I shot a really good group compared to, you know, some other people, but other people shot good groups as well. So it was kind of like, it was hard to pay attention to all of it. Um, I just tried to focus on what I was doing. And, but for me particular, like I shot about as well as I thought I could have. There's only really one arrow that I kind of want back. Um, but I don't think at the end of the day, it really hurt me too bad. It's just, man, like you're used to the pin floating a little bit. And when your heart rate's jacked like that, like the pins, like 
all over the place and you're like (laughs) oh my god just settle please did you were you shooting your matthews or did you shoot the elite Uh, i shot the elite i had both of them with me Mm -hmm. it was kind of one of those things like i have both bows i have a double bow case i'm going out there to compete in something the worst thing that i can think of is like me falling and something happening and then not having a bow to shoot so i was like i might as well bring it i brought them both um I've just been shooting that elite a little bit more. So I felt a little bit more confident in like the sight tape and just the way, like overall the feel of the bow. Yeah, so, that makes sense. What, what site were you running on that? Uh, I have that. I have an HHA Tetra site with a ultra view, uh, UV scope, the small one. Are you running a single pin or are you running a, like a three pin on that? So for this, I ran a single pin um, only sense. for the reason of I can dial to the ex- like shooting well matters. Yeah. So being able to dial to the exact yardage. Hey, if I get to a target and it's 48 yards, I can dial to 48 yards. I don't have to kind of like hold my pin a little higher, a little low. I don't have to pin gap. So I could be a little bit more accurate with that. And it's one less thing that I have to think about in that moment in that competition setting like hey i only have to put this one pin that's in this in the scope on the target uh coming from shooting out or not out indoor all winter long mm-hmm. i got really used to just looking at one pin not having to worry about anything else so i just wanted to keep that consistency kind of up through this competition and then now i'll start to switch and go to a multi-pin housing to kind of get ready for hunting season yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I just, I just ordered that. Um, I basically took your advice. I ordered that HHA, um, the four pin, but I, I got it customized. I did a three pin and I did a 0.19 on the top two and a, uh, 0.10 on the bottom one. Yeah. That's, so I mean, a lot my, of my bow ever comes in, like it'll be nice to shoot it. <laughs> it'll come in. It'll come in. <laughs> Matthews, if you're listening, I can't wait to shoot this thing. But I mean, come on, bro. It's been a grind waiting for this baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. I Hey, I've been there. The, the COVID years were a little rough, too, trying to get both. Oh, I can't even when imagine they first came out like during COVID. It's it just, crazy. I mean, like everything else, it just kind of got backed up. Yeah. Well, so you get this whole thing done. You win. You're like their first big winner. Um, and then from there, do you go straight to Talladega on Saturday? Because you... Like what, what is that? Were they qualifying Saturday? Yeah. So I didn't have to be there until Sunday. So that like the timing of this whole competition and the NASCAR schedule and what race it actually is, um, that weekend, like it could not have worked out any more perfect than it did because I didn't have to be to the racetrack till Sunday. The first form challenge uh, was on. Yeah. Why didn't just out of curiosity, why didn't you have to be there until Cause you used to have to be there or normally you have to be there early, right? So normally I would pit a, uh, the Xfinity series on Saturday, which is like the triple A of the right. in the NASCAR schedule. Um, it is or the the hierarchy of it. There's the Cup series, the Xfinity series, the trucks, and it just kind of works its way down to like the local level from there. I usually do pit the Xfinity series, but knowing that I was probably not going to be in the greatest con- physical condition on Saturday after you know, abusing myself on Friday um, and the added stress of just making sure the travel, because it was so tight. 
Um, I opted to not go to that race and just have one of our um, backups pit it for me. Um, it's not a, I'm contracted to pit everything on Sundays. Saturdays are kind of one of those like, Hey, we want you to do those races, but if you know, something comes up, like you have something going on, it's not the end of the world. If I were to miss one, who does qualifying, I guess I, I just kind of assumed that y'all were qualifying. So the way that the, uh, the way the NASCAR like teams work in NASCAR, mm-hmm. we call them a teams and B teams or road crews and pit crews. Uh, okay. it's not like the A team is better than the B team. It's just the A team is the team. It's the group of guys that go to the racetrack that are the mechanics that get the car set up. They're the ones that do all of the practice qualifying, um, getting it through tech inspection. They do all of that work. And then us, the pit crew, we're the B team. We come in on Sunday and all we do is service the car during the race. We pit it. We don't do any of the work on Saturday or Friday for the qualifying or practice. So that's interesting. I mean, y'all are on a pretty good roll right now. I think like I watched the race yesterday and I think what you won Vegas a little while ago, you won Phoenix, you came in fifth Dakota. And then yesterday y'all took seventh. I was like, at a certain point you were out of the top 20 and I was at the top 20 for a while, (laughs) for a long time. Like yeah, end of the first, uh, I think end of the, maybe it was, the whole second stage, end of the second stage, beginning of the third stage. Um, and then what happened that you were able to get back up there? So like to your point, we've had a really good season. Um, we've been, we won two races this year. We won Phoenix and Vegas and we finished or have run up front in almost every race this year. We haven't really had a race that's been like a really bad, like, Hey, we missed it. We're no good. Um, which is just yeah. a testament to like how good Hendrick Motorsports is this year and how good of cars they're putting out there because our teammate Kyle Larson has also won two races. And um, Alex Bowman's been running up front all year. It's only a matter of time before he knocks the door down. And now we have Chase Elliott back, and he proved first week back in the car at Martinsville last week that he can run top 10. So, And you're only 23 points out of top 10 right now, right? You're all on 14th? Yeah, I mean, we're there because we got levied some penalties uh, earlier in the year. So So I'm saying you should be higher. We should be. Uh, If we, we would probably be second in points right now, if it wasn't for the 60 point penalty, we got levied a couple weeks ago. What was that? Uh, It's it's a whole nother conversation. (laughs) Okay. We'll we'll table that one for a different day. (laughs) So this is, I think this is an interesting story, right? You, um, you're a Northern guy, a Northern kid, um, who ended up down in the South on a pit crew, uh, in NASCAR. And to me, that's a really interesting story. And I know you're into cars growing up, but how did that whole thing happen? Man, I, it's. Like your parents always tell you when you're growing up, yo, you can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want to be, you know, like the kind of generic, um, the sky's the limit. Right. And for me growing up, my dad had always brought me to the racetrack as a little kid. And it was like, as long as I can remember, I've been going to the racetrack in Connecticut at these little short tracks and just absolutely loved it. And it kind of got to the point where, I had a friend in high school who had a race car, so I started helping him out, and I started getting a little bit more involved. And when the more involved I got, it just kind of snowballed, and it turned into one of those things that 
I guess it would, you would call it an obsession um, or just like a really dedicated passion. And I just started helping him out, which led to helping other people out, which led to helping a, a the top level team we had in Connecticut at the time where they were touring to a bunch of different states to race. And that was just like the big step. Like, you know, you're not just doing the same thing every Saturday night at your local short track. We were actually going to Hickory, North Carolina, Lime Rock, Connecticut. We were going to uh, Watkins Glen in New York, Dover, Delaware. We were traveling around and racing at some of these big tracks. And that was kind of my first like foot in the water that like, hey, people do this. For, someone has to do this for a living. All the people Somebody's I've seen paid. race on TV. <laughs> What's that? Somebody's getting paid to do this. Yeah, somebody's getting paid to do it. Someone has to do it. And it was kind of one of those like, why not me things? I got to a point in my, you know, my life, I was in college and I was flunking out of college. I was, I was on academic probation and it wasn't because I'm not like, I couldn't do the work or it's not because I, I'm not smart and I didn't understand it. It was just, I was not doing the work because I was skipping class to go to the racetrack or I was skipping class to go work on the race cars. Honestly, that's when I, when I know like people that that happens to, I mean, I've got an older son who, you know, he just didn't want to be there, you know? And he, it was kind of like this expectation in the family, like, Hey, that's kind of what you do. And he just didn't want to be there. You know, it's not for everybody. Yeah. It, it just, it wasn't for me. Um, I'm way better building things. I, I just, I have, it's, I don't like sitting down and like doing work. I would much rather be outside swinging a hammer, mowing the grass, building something, working on something, problem solving something than studying and, you know, becoming, I guess, more not, intellectually like deep. You you're know? not good at being still. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, that like my sister, she's in college again. She's, she goes to Harvard. She, that is her. She has all of that. She has the time for it, the passion for it, the patience for it. Uh, I just, I don't, um, it's not a bad thing. I saw an opportunity where I was going to have to leave college, whether I wanted to or not. And I had to, you know, I had to do something. So I was like, I'm going to move to North Carolina. I'm going to pack everything I have up in this 10 passenger van and I'm going to give racing a shot. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to be doing, whether I was going to be pitting race cars or working on them, being a mechanic, but I knew I wanted to be involved in NASCAR in some capacity because I don't feel like when I'm working on race, like I don't feel like I ever have to go to work when I'm working on cars, like when I'm working on race cars or just being in the sport, it's just something I like, I'm like, very fortunate that I get to do that. So packed everything up, 21 years old, moved to North Carolina. There was a pit school in Mooresville. It's called, it's called the pit school. Actually it's performance Institute and training. I think don't quote me on it, but essentially what they do, it's an eight week program where they teach you how to do all the stuff. When it comes to pitting race cars, they teach you how to change tires. They teach you how to carry tires, Jack and gas. And from there, they give you like, that is like your pit stop 101. It is the basic bare bones choreography, just the kind of the do's and the don'ts. But there is a lot that you need to master after that. And 
I did that program and then spent the next probably nine or 10 months just trying to get better at my craft and hustle and, and, and get so, any opportunity I could. I was going to say during that time, were you working like every different skill? Like, were you working the jack? Were you working tires? Were you working gas? Or did you kind of know coming out of that school that you were going to be a tire guy? I, my body type, I could have gone either anyway. Like a lot of guys kind of by their body type, by their size, their weight, their athleticism, they kind of get classified into being, you know, if you're five foot nine and 160 pounds, you're most likely going to be a tire changer. Mm -hmm. If you're five foot, not five foot 10 to six, two, you know, 200, 215, you're probably going to be either a tire carrier or a jack man. And if you're like a, you know, six, four, two fifty freak athletic, you're probably going to be a gas man. Cause at the time and now gas men, they, they have to be just so athletic to move the weight around and the speed they have to do it now is more demanding than ever. So you kind of get categorized, but me being six foot one ninety when I got here, I could have kind of gone either way. I could have put on a little bit more muscle, got a little heavier and been a jack man and I could have just kind of stayed where I'm at and been a tire changer, but been on the taller side of the spectrum of tire changers. And honestly, I just kind of, I knew some people in the sport and I kind of was who makes the most money. And typically at the time when I was getting into it, tire changers had the higher salary of the four positions. So that's kind of the one I went for. Um, if you have to learn still one, true? you might as well. It's an... And why did they consider that a higher skill position because you had like you were working like five lug nuts at the time? Yeah, it was a higher skill position. And just the 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 difference between like the top two percent of tire changers on pit road and like the middle of the road tire changers mm -hmm. on pit road, there was a very large discrepancy. So the better you could be at it, um, just like in any business, you know, you're going to set yourself apart. Right. So it's not necessarily that way anymore. Um, the way the pit stops have evolved and we, we, we went from six to five or we went from five lug nuts to one lug nut. We went from six guys over the wall to five guys over the wall. And when we did a lot of that, we put a lot more workload on the Jackman. So now the Jackman has to be not only a Jackman, but he also has to be a tire carrier. So he has a lot more on his plate. So, he picked up more work. What was of, the rationale for NASCAR to take a guy off? I don't know if I have the correct answer for it, but kind of the the answer that we all were told or the, the kind of the, what we thought was it was a, they're taking one more person off of pit road. So that way there's one less person out there to get injured. Um, they, they deemed it a safety concern to get one more individual off of pit road how much of that is probably true probably not i don't know some of it was also we as pit crew guys probably thought it was uh with this six man pit stop we were reaching times that were very fast and that were not obtainable by every organization mm -hmm. and i think as a way to kind of reset the field if you take one guy away everybody has to figure out how to do this all over again so everybody kind of like the bar gets set and then everyone has to go from there again. You know, it's not like some teams are here, some teams are here, and that the gap just kept getting further away. When everyone has to go back to 
figure it out when you give everyone a new task the bar gets reset for everybody and then you know the incremental getting up getting better creates more parity i guess but um it definitely did not do that <laughs> it, it, it for, for someone like myself and the teams that i've been fortunate enough to be on in the last five years what nascar did was make my job more valuable um which is great and the division between the top 2% and the middle, you know, 60% is wildly bigger in my opinion. And it just means that much more. Why is that? Why did it change it so much? Cause it, like in the past, if I want you to complete a task, regardless of what the task is, uh, mowing a lawn, building a wall, just putting a house together, whatever it is, the more people, that I give you to do that, the less skilled each individual has to be. Just you labor, know? basically. It's just, yeah, like you can have someone who's like really highly skilled and someone who's not so highly skilled. And the average of those two, like the high skilled guy can help make up for the lower skilled guy. But when you take away people, the more people I take away from that project, the people that you're going to want are the ones that are more highly skilled, the ones that are always on time, the ones that do the work at the highest level because now they have to take on more work and you know you give a higher performing person more work they're going to elevate to that if you give a mid-tier worker more work you know more things get left undone more things get missed so because they took away a person everybody has to be a little bit better because at the end of the day we're racing the stopwatch it's irrelevant what the other teams do around you as long as you're racing the stopwatch. So the, the goal in pit stops has always been to be done as fast as possible and be done correctly. To do that, you want the most high, the highest skilled individuals you can get that operate at a 95% or higher capacity all the time. Yeah, that's, I mean... I think I remember when I first started watching NASCAR like 25, 30 years ago, I, w I was a Northern kid, Michigan. And um, I knew a few guys that were into it, but it wasn't a huge sport like it is down in the South. And then I came down here and the difference it, in the pit crews, the way they look now versus the way they looked, you know, 20, 25 years ago, um, they're just so athletic now, you know, versus kind of, they were a lot of more kind of good old boys 25 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> now everybody's an athlete out there. Well, just back to the point, you know, I was just making, if you can get somebody who is, you know, has, you know, a beer gut, not a lot of fitness, doesn't really take that care of themselves, you know, you're always going to have outliers that can do the job and do it well. But at the end of the day, we're playing a sport. You want the most athletic individuals you can have on the team, people that take care of themselves because, you know, it's like changing oil in your car. If you take care of yourself, you're going to be able to operate at a higher level. Um, and teams understood that, you know, just like anything else. Like if, if fitness didn't matter, you know, you wouldn't have these freak athletes playing in the NFL all the time. You know, you would just have your average Joe's where if I went and put on a pair of cleats and a helmet, I'd get demolished. I'd get depleted before the first kickoff. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I mean, I, so I coached, college football for 10 years and i remember um i came down to the university of south carolina i think in 91 or 92 and um 
guys were big, but we had linemen then who had like kind of big flabby stomachs. And um, there were a lot of guys that if you saw them on the street, you would characterize them as fat. Yeah. And if you look at, at linemen today, the offensive linemen in the NFL that weigh 320 pounds, they don't, they, they look like tight ends today. Like the, their bodies have changed so much. They average 40 pounds more. They're more athletic. Their body composition is completely different. Just the, the way that people have trained uh, in all the different sports has just elevated so much in the last 20 years. Yeah. And even those offensive linemen that, you know, you would consider, you know, to not have a, like a really low body fat percentage. The reason why they carry that extra weight is because it's a performance enhancer for them. You know, it's right. harder to get, they it's to harder it. to get them moved. They have to have it. And, you know, you watch a lot of them, um, when they're done, you know, they can shed that weight pretty easy because it is a, it is part of their job to keep that weight on while they're playing football because it's an advantage for them. So it's not that the, it's not like, like you said, it's not the, you know, you don't take the fattest kid in peewee football and put them on the line. You know, that's not how it kind of works in that upper echelon of the sport anymore. So it's the same thing in NASCAR. Like anytime you can get individuals that are fit, like no one's ever wished in any sport, in any endeavor, like I wish I was less fit. I wish I wasn't so in shape. I wish I wasn't so strong, you know, like, Right. There's use cases for things like, yeah, you're not going to get a 250 pound power lifter to get on a bike and ride the Tour de France, you know, but just in general, um, in sports, especially the sport you're playing, no one wished they were less of anything. It's always that endeavor. How can I get better and better and better to provide for myself and my team and be a better athlete? Yeah. I mean, interestingly enough for me, the way that I found you was on YouTube. Um, you know, I, I have just started getting into archery and, and went down this archery wormhole and, and I found a bunch of your stuff on YouTube, but your fitness level, like, as I really have started to, to really get into, to archery and like my, my you know, my big goal is to go on a, an elk hunt out West in 2024, like the fitness level that it requ is required to be out and to do Western hunts is really high correct yeah it's um it's definitely it pays dividends to put in the time and you know be strong um it i feel like for me it keeps me safer um because i know that if i get into a situation i know i can probably get out of it because i got into it but just so when you being say get in into a situation what does that mean just running away from a bear <laughs> or trying to survive. <laughs> oh God, I hope not. Trying to survive a, a snowstorm for three days. <laughs> uh, just like, you know, like if you get in, like I've done it before, like you hike in a little too far, you get in some deadfall and you need to find a way to get out. Like I'm not too worried, like besides just the general navigation, like I'm not worried, like I'm too far in. I don't know if I physically can get back out. Like I've gone too far. Like, you know, that like that saying, like I've, I've gone too far. There's no coming back. Like, right. I don't feel like I can because I take care of myself and because I'm fit, I can get a little deeper than somebody else and know I can still get whatever I get on the ground back out. Um, but just being fit to go out there does pay dividends because like for me, like here in North Carolina right now, I'm at 600 feet of elevation. And then if you're going to go hunt elk 
anywhere out west, you're looking at a minimum thirty five hundred, maybe. You know, up you to eleven thousand feet. Before you went out there for your first, like, did you? I know some people get into hyperbaric chambers or some kind of thing where they like simulate elevation. Did you do anything like that before you went out there the first time? I didn't. Um, the only thing I did, like the things that you can do to help yourself go into elevation was I made sure I was more than hydrated enough. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been eating correctly and that like my VO two system in my body, like I know I can have a high respiratory rate and still be able to consume oxygen and expel CO2. Um, and then the, obviously the higher up you get, the less you have of that, the better your system is, you know, the more cardiac, you know, the more in shape you are, I guess with your cardio, you know, with your cardio, it, it helps. So for me, it was, wasn't a shift where I just went like only worried about cardio because like strength does play a factor, like leg strength to be able to carry your pack and walk around. Um, but there was like, I made sure when going into it, I was in probably the best shape I could be because that was the biggest buffer I had, you know, to fight altitude sickness or, just not have a good experience. Like if you're not in great shape, you know, I didn't want to limit myself by not being in great shape being, I can't go in that extra mile that I can hear that bugle because it's too far, you know, or that hill's too high. I never wanted to my fitness to be the limiter of it. Um, and that's kind of, that's always been my, my goal is to not let my physical fitness be the thing that's like, I won't be able to go because I don't have time or because I get cliffed out, not look at a hill and be like, ah, it's a little too high. And I don't feel like doing that. Yeah. I watched, um, I was watching something on YouTube the other day and it was like a guided hunt with Ralph Ramos. Um, and he had a guy who was a major league baseball player and, and like he shot his shot his bull like the first day in the afternoon, you know, they, I mean, they had gone through this, there was like, <laughs> they were in the rut and there was like six bulls all over the place. It was like a shooting gallery, but from everything I've looked at public land hunting, completely different animal, right? I mean, you are out there freaking grinding, trying to find them to begin with. And then once you find them, they're moving, you know, it's not the same deal. Yeah. They're definitely pressured animals. Um, you know, public land gets hunted a lot and it's not impossible to get it done on public land. It's just, the pool of people that are hunting on public land is a lot larger than, you know, a ranch or maybe a guided hunt that has permission to hunt on, you know, private property. So you're not only competing with the animal to get, you know, they want to stay alive and you're trying to, you know, kill that animal. So like it's a big cat and mouse game, but you're also competing against the other hunters in the woods to get into a position, you know, maybe you might have to go a little deeper than them because you know tom and jack only want to go a mile off the road but yeah if you can get that mile and a half off the road you know then the elk are less pressured because they've been pushed in a mile and a half because everyone kind of gets to that one mile buffer off of the road or off of a trail and that the i will say the further you go in the more of a realization you have when you sit there and think about it you're like oh man i'm two and a half miles away from anything like that's a long ways in my opinion. Like I feel like I, it's a long way. I'm not one of the guys that goes 14 miles deep. Cause I don't have the time to do that. I watched a hunt the other day and they were seven, six or seven miles in. And 
killed a bull at dusk and didn't have the stuff they even needed. They literally, uh, they quartered it out. I think they got it back to the truck and then they had to come back and they went back out at first light and the other dude got one. Oh, <laughs> so they were literally had two of them within about 14 hours that they had to quarter out haul out and they had to make i think they made i'm trying to think how many i think the first time they had to make two trips and then the second time they ran into a couple other guys that helped them but i was just like like the the stamina and the the fitness that that required just but like you sit there and talk about all it takes to get there but like that's that is an insane amount of work that's what people like to say, right? Like after the animal is down the ground, that's where the work begins. Yeah. Um, that's where the, like up until that point, you know, it's always, oh man, I can, I can go chase that a little further. I can go over that next ridge because it's that excitement of, I feel like when you're in, a, when you're in a kid and you're in a car and your parents are driving you somewhere, it always takes, you know, it, you always seem like it's faster to get to the location than it is and it takes forever to get home because like yeah you're so anticipated to get to where you're gonna go like time goes by really fast and you're you know you're paying attention and you're like it's, it's a lot easier to go after that but once it's over and now you have to like haul all that meat back it just seems like every mile is two miles every step feels like it's inches shorter than the one you just took and it's like are we really, did we really come this far in? <laughs> like, what yeah, the were guys, we thinking? The guys that, I, that I've talked to that do it have basically said, like, you just got to know, like, you got to embrace the suck. Like, that's a yeah. thing. And you just, you can't even sit there and think, oh, this is, like, it's going to suck. And that's just part of the fun of it, knowing that not very many people can do that. Um, which, interestingly enough, you know, I kind of talked about your YouTube thing, like, a little bit ago. The, the way I found you other than a couple, like I saw you doing some archery reviews cause I was looking at bows, but you did a couple of years ago. It was your first Western hunt. I think you're, you literally soloed out to Colorado, I think, right. On your first hunt by your, like you just went out there by yourself and did a public land with an over the counter tag. Yeah. Solo DIY. Like, let's just freaking go. Let's, picked up the <laughs> let's, tag and took off. let's just go like, forget no guide. Like, not going out with a buddy i'm just going all in let's like freaking dive in oh i mean if i had if i had the financial resources to hire a guide at the time and if i had a buddy who wanted to go i would gladly have taken some of that but how um, much are guided hunts anyway like i haven't even started looking at that. those like are they ridiculous uh i i they can range from a couple thousand to you know in the you know well over ten thousand dollars um I think some of that depends on, you know, what you're getting. I know mm -hmm. you can hire guides that will come on public land with you and, you know, do the calling and kind of be the guy who has the experience and hopefully get you into an opportunity because, you know, they know the lay of the land. They know the elk herd. They kind of know that area, um, which is a huge advantage. I was going to say, then, that seems like a little more interesting to me than to go. And maybe I'm, I'm sure if I shot a huge bull, I would not be saying this, but you know, going to a place where it, everything kind of is easy it, that I don't know, maybe it's just because I've kind of used to doing everything hard, but that seems like it's a lot, a little bit less challenging. 
yeah, not every guided hunt comes with a, you know, a 10,000 acre ranch that's got, you know, elk around every tree. Yeah. Um, you can pay for those experiences and you can pay for those opportunities and they're, they're going to cost you more, but you can also, you know, save some money and hire a guide to go on the pub, the same public land that I had access to that where I was, um, to come and be your, like your tour guide to the area for lack of, I mean, your guide. Of, right. You and know. to do the calls and everything. So yeah, they do that? the calls. I mean, yeah, go ahead. They would do, you know, they would call for you. They, they understand the lay of the land. They understand where these, these elk and these herds typically migrate, you know, where they're going, where the food sources is, where the water is. So it kind of, it will definitely help shorten the learning curve, um, and make it maybe a little bit more of a better experience, but going by yourself and just figuring it out, that's rewarding and enough. That was rewarding for me to be able to find elk, get on them and be like, this isn't impossible. Right. I was going to say, right. When I was watching your, um, the one from two years ago, you got into it. What was it the first day or the second day you got into them? It would have been the first morning I flew in, got in, hiked in the woods. And then the first morning I woke up in Colorado, I was on elk in elk. And you were probably like, uh, okay, game on. Right. Yeah. I was like, oh man, this is, this is it. This is it. Like, I'm like, oh, this is day one. Man, I got like, even if I don't connect today, I got four more days of this. Uh, I've got one. Kind of didn't quite count my chickens before they hatched, but definitely, I definitely felt confident that it was going to happen, which it didn't. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah. So for people that haven't done it yet, and even for like some, obviously I haven't done it yet. So I'm, you know, trying to learn as much I can about all this stuff, but I think, you know, you think you're in the middle of them and as long as you can kind of keep track of them that you can stay in them, what, what happens there? Uh, they are much larger and they they cover a lot of ground. They cover a lot of ground really fast. Um, there's a reason why they like a bull elk weighs five, six, seven, 800 pounds. It's because they have a lot of muscle and a lot of leg muscle. And when they want to go up a hill, that's 15 degrees for them. It's like me walking out my driveway to get my car. Like it Mm -hmm. doesn't take any effort. They just go up. And for someone like you or me at 9,000 feet of elevation, we can't process that kind of, you know, oxygen deprivation and be able to traverse a 15 degree incline like they can. So trying to keep up with a herd is really, really hard to do. Um, if not almost impossible just to like stay within, you know, on them the whole time. Usually you're trying, like, at least for me, what I was trying to do is I was trying to figure out the, the terrain and, you know, kind of the features in that area, like bedding, food, water, and trying to like get in the corridors where they should be coming through, um, to make that a little, yeah, like a feet, like a watering pattern and then a bedding pattern. Yeah. Cause I mean, elk, like, like whitetails, like I'm sure a lot of people have either hunted whitetails or know someone who hunts whitetails and whitetails can be very patternable. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they always need food, they need water and they need bedding. And if you can figure out those three for a particular whitetail, chances are he's going to do, um, about the same thing all the time, unless he gets pressured. So elk are kind of, they're in that same servant family. So they'll do about the same thing. 
unless they get pressured. And if they get pressured, they move and then they reestablish a routine wherever they get, you know, where they feel unpressured. So if you can get on them and not like bump them out of an area, they should do about the same thing, um, you know, or go through the same patterns, same times a day, typically, um, as in like a, a large macro scale of things. So you got on them quick. And then what happened? Got on them quick. Did um, you ever get a found, shot? I, I came close. I, being the guy who is filming, calling, and the shooter, um, it's not easy. It's probably not the easiest thing to do. And the very first time is worry about getting a shot with your camera and a shot with your bow. I had called. Would you do bull- it again the same way? Would you do the camera thing again? Or would you just go, go out and hunt? I'd probably do the camera thing again. Um, I think I'm a little, I don't know if it carrying the extra weight kind of sucked, but I don't really think the camera, the camera is not what made me didn't get that shot. It was the calling setup and not having the experience, you know, um, and being set up incorrectly is what caused me not to get that shot. I had set up, I called this bull over this ridge, um, away from these cows and he got to within 25 yards of me, but I needed him to take about five or six more steps, which was about 10 yards past this, I don't know, this cluster of trees and branches and a bunch of deadfall, weren't you? Or was that later? No, I mean, that was kind of in where I was. It was a burn with a bunch of deadfall in it. And I had a bunch of branches and trees that were kind of in the way. If he would have taken another handful of steps, he would have been broadside at 20, 25 yards. And yeah, I, I would have felt spooked or what, what happened that you couldn't get him in there. You just couldn't. He just, how did you get, did you get him over with a bull call or what did you get him over over with? I did some cow calling and then some bugling. Um, Every time I bugle, he'd bugle back, but it didn't seem like he was coming in. So adding a few more cow calls in there kind of made it seem like, you know, hey, a bull is taking some cows away from this, you know, his harem. So he wants to come over and, you know, confront that bull. And Mm -hmm. uh, I got him to come over the ridge. The wind was right. Everything was right. But when he came up over, like I said, we're in a burn. So he kind of came over and he could see that, like, you know, for a while in this burn that he didn't see the elk he wanted to see. And that's where my setup was wrong. I should have been a little closer to the ridge. I should have been on the left side of these trees where they were falling and not quite behind them. Um, because when he came up over the flat and, you know, kind of looked around cause he got sucked right up over to it. He didn't see what he wanted to see. And I can understand now that he didn't want to walk another 50 yards because he didn't have to, because he could see all of that. So if I so were to you, set up a little you closer, need to, you need to like, you're basically saying you should have brought him, into an area where he couldn't see as well. So that he had to continue to go and explore. I should have split the distance from where I knew he was um, before I called. Okay. I was too far away. So like imagine coming up over this plateau, you know, and being able to see a couple hundred yards in front of you, you're only going to come up over it as far as you need to, to see what you need to see. I was a little too far back. I was trying to drag him a hundred yards up over this plateau instead of 20 yards. That makes sense. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. So I that's, just, like, I mean, that's, it's, it's all like you learn so much, don't you? I mean, that's every, again, I haven't been out there, but everything I've 
read and listened to is just like there's just so much to learn. Yeah, I was just caught up in, you know, I would call and he would call back. So like for someone who's never <laughs> called elk before, like it's a big game of Marco Polo. Like I can call and he calls me back. Like this that is would amazing. be amazing. Like so it's hard not to sit there and just consistently just hammer that bugle tube because you're like, I make this noise and he makes that noise. Like it's everything mm -hmm. that all the YouTube videos show. It's just I you know, setup wise, it's one of those things like if you had a guide, he could have helped, you know, put you in a better setup situation. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, just experience. You gotta get it somehow. So how was being out there all by yourself? Like I know you got a lot of weather that first night, I think. What was what was that like just outside of the hunting piece, just being out there completely alone? Uh for me, that's something I like. Um I spent a lot of time in my youth in Boy Scouts. Um got all the way up through, became an Eagle Scout. So being in the woods, I feel fairly comfortable. Um, it's not something that is, it's not like I had to learn how to be in the woods and hunt at the same time. Like I'm comfortable in the woods, but the first night we were there, I was there, um, set up camp weather looked like it was going to be fine. Maybe a little bit of sprinkle, but nothing bad. Um, and the one thing I learned out West is that it doesn't matter what the weatherman says, the weather's going to do what the weather does. And we got a couple inches of snow, thunderstorms, hail. When you have a thunderstorm at 600 feet of elevation, you know, it's not bad. Like, you know, you can hear the thunder and it booms and it rolls and you're like, oh man, that's, that's cool. When you're at 9,000 feet and you're a lot closer to those clouds. Is it that um, big of a difference? It's a lot different. Is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is. Uh, it like rattles your rib cage. It's just the lightning's brighter. Everything is just a little bit more. You're like, oh, I'm way closer to this than I want to be. A little, just a little spookier. Yeah. Just a little bit more of like, a, how far am I back here again? What? Oh, man. Yeah. How far it's were you just, like a mile and a half in or how far in were you? I was just over two and a half. Okay. So you were in there a little bit. I was just over two and a half as the crow flies. So it was probably a little bit more like three and change walking, zigzagging and kind of traversing. But I had some stuff I e-scouted on the map that I thought was really good. It had food, water cover. Um, mm -hmm. And it was one of those, like, if there's going to be elk, they're going to be in here. They were. Uh, so it was definitely the right place to be, but. It was definitely a uh, a large obstacle I took on day one. It was a little bit more daunting than I kind of thought it would be, um, and the weather just didn't help. But it was uh, in hindsight, I, I don't, I wouldn't, I would have done it again, a hundred percent. I would have gone. I would give if I if I did not draw a tag this year, I would have gone back to Colorado and gone right to that same unit, right to that same pin, and tried to get on those elk again. So what did you draw this year? Right now, uh, I have an elk and mule deer tag in Montana. I was unsuccessful in New Mexico. Wyoming draws not out yet. Um, I'm just getting ready to put in for Utah. That draw comes up in, as we're recording this, three more days. So trying to get in on that. Um, so you can still put in for Utah right now? Yes. Up until the 27th. No, that's a late application period. 
Yeah, it used to be earlier, and then um, this year they moved it back. I don't remember the reasoning, but it's a good thing they did because I kind of forgot um, about Utah because I was focused on a lot of other things going on this month. And so are you? will you hunt all of them if you pull multiple tags, or is it going to be like pick your best one and go? Because I know, obviously, you're racing a bunch. Yeah, um, I have tags that are priority. Like if I were to draw New Mexico, that trumped all my other tags. I would have gone to New Mexico for the rut. Um, Montana is a really cool state where you can go there for archery. See, you if you draw a general tag in Montana, it's a it's a rifle tag. It's for the later season, but you can go purchase an archery stamp essentially and then you can use that tag to hunt during archery season so if you are unsuccessful during archery season you can just come back with a rifle and hunt off that same tag in the general units oh that's interesting so they they give you a lot of opportunity Mm -hmm. wyoming's the same way there are some units or some tags that are archery specific that's if you draw it that's the only thing you can hunt but if you draw their general tag you can hunt during archery season with the archery stamp. And then if you're unsuccessful, come back during rifle season and still hunt with that tag. Um, so like if I would have drawn New Mexico, that would have been bow only. And it would have been for a one week block. And that, so that one would take priority because I can always go back in November in Montana with the rifle and, you know, hunt then. So yeah. Uh, just kind of wait for them to come in and whichever one has the better opportunity or fits into my schedule better, I'll go. Um, but I don't see myself not hunting on it. Like I don't see myself burning a tag, like not going at all. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be in the same place you are right now next year. So I'm going to be excited to hear what happens on that one. Obviously after you go out and, and get your hunt in this fall. Uh, let's have you back. Cause I'm hoping that we're going to have a big bull story oh, next time sure. we have a conversation. <laughs> I where think can so. people, where can people find you on social media? So I'm predominantly on Instagram at Jeff Cordero underscore, and I'm on YouTube. Um, you can just search Jeff Cordero and I should pop right up. Yeah. Great content. If you're, you know, looking for, reviews on products uh really good bow reviews got a lot of good videos on uh citing some stuff in it really helped me a ton as i started to get going and i was researching product and kind of learning about the basics about all this stuff there's so much to learn but i really love your content um and really appreciate you taking the time to be here if you like this video make sure you subscribe give us a like thanks for being with us jeff we appreciate you brother Dude, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, I love it. Talk to you after you get that bull next fall. For sure. I cannot (laughs) wait. (laughs) See you, man. See ya. You're still here? Thanks for listening to the Do Not Go Quietly podcast with Eric Wilson. Go home. Go. still here thanks for listening to the do not go quietly podcast over with eric wilson 
Go home. Go.